Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Paul Coyer. I'm a research professor here at the Institute of World Politics. I always add uh, that we are not a think tank, even though we do like to think that we think here. Uh, we are actually a graduate school. We have a relatively low profile in town, so a lot of people don't realize that. But we have five two-year master's degrees and 17 one-year certificates, and this August are starting our first PhD program. Um, Pleased today to have uh, a friend of mine, uh, Charles Edel. He, uh, we just discovered he was doing his undergrad at Yale when I was doing a divinity degree. I didn't realize that before. Uh, he studied history. He's a history historian like myself. Um, teaches at the U.S. Naval War College and um, extremely well published. Uh, and he just uh, apparently liked New Haven because he spent a lot of time there between his undergrad and his uh, MAM, Phil, and PhD. Couldn't get away. Um, and it reminds me of something John Quincy Adams said, who's the topic of our talk today, when he was a senator uh, around 1803, 4, something like that. I don't know if you've heard this story, but he took a carriage through New Haven en route back to his house in Massachusetts, and he was a Harvard guy. And, you know, there's th that rivalry has gone on ever since the beginning of time. And he stopped in and had dinner with the president of Yale, who's, I, whose name I've forgotten now, and criticized him and said he was a singular example of someone of great learning but no genius, um, and said New Haven was a dirty little one-horse town, which I'm sure it was. Um, but at any rate, it's, it's changed. It's better now. Um, uh, Charles was at uh, Beida, Be uh, Peking University Center for International and Strategic Studies, as a Henry Luce Scholar, and was awarded uh, was awarded the Council on Foreign Relations International Affairs Fellowship. He has served in numerous roles in the U.S. government as a political and counterterrorism analyst. Worked as a research associate at the CFR, the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, and actually taught high school history as well in New York. So he's had uh, experience teaching all kinds of age groups, an intelligence officer in the Naval Reserves. He's the author of the book we're here to discuss today, Nation Builder, John Quincy Adams and the Grand Strategy of the Republic. And uh, currently he's working on a project about the role of foreign uh, revolutions in American history. Please join me in welcoming Charles Edel. Thanks, Paul. Uh, and thanks very much to the Institute for uh, hosting me today. Uh, it's nice to see so many of you having come in from the humid outside uh, to be here in the cool inside and to see uh, friends uh, here as well. But look, we have to start with redressing some wrongs uh, at the outset of this talk because it's important to note that whereas Adams is where Adams is, where Harvard men through and through, therefore they hated Yale, we should also say they didn't like Harvard that much either. Uh, so when John Quincy Adams arrived there to matriculate as a freshman, actually as a junior, because he started as a junior. Uh, the first letters home to his family noted that his tutors couldn't teach him anything. That's an Adams, and we're going to get to just how uh, much he was. But I thought I would actually start um, with a brief story today to illustrate just how relevant uh, John Quincy Adams is to American politics today. So... In the election of 1828, uh, which is noted by historians as the first modern, and you can substitute modern for dirty, uh, political race, uh, John Quincy uh, was accused uh, by uh, his opponents as being in collusion with the Russians. And actually, this goes a little bit further, that uh, Jackson's surrogates uh, pointed out, it was a much more scurrilous story, that when Adams had been ambassador, was called minister at the time, in St. Petersburg. He had actually gone out 
pimping for the czar. Now, this is preposterous, of course, uh, and it was preposterous for a number of reasons which are worth pointing out. Uh, he had been friendly with the czar when he was minister over there, but having been president for the past four years, he had threatened war with the czar and had done so convincingly enough that the Russians backed down from their claims to the American Pacific Northwest. He had also, in clear, frank, and direct uh, notes to the Russian ambassador in Washington, noted and continued to advocate in a full-throated defense of American values, aligning them very closely with American interests. So, notwithstanding differences between President Adams and President Trump, uh, I thought we would actually uh, note that at the outset, uh, this might seem like an interesting enough uh, subject for a talk or maybe even a book, but probably doesn't fire up your minds when you're thinking about American foreign policy, American grand strategy today. And uh, I would say at the outset that my former uh, boss, when I was working at the State Department, uh, Secretary Kerry, disagreed. Uh, and here is a, I don't know, do we have a pointer on this thing? I'll just, look, it's two steps. I'll walk over it, we're good. Um, so when Secretary Kerry was hosting uh, Chinese State Councilor Yang Jie in 2014, uh, the one place they went outside of Boston, who was hosting him up there as they began to talk about the climate accords, was the Adams household in Quincy, Mass. And this was the appropriate setting, Secretary Kerry thought, to show his Chinese interlocutor uh, American power at its source. So what I'd like to do today is not necessarily talk uh, about American contemporary uh, grand strategy, but rather step back a little bit and talk about what I think are the necessary foundations for understanding American power today. Uh, and then maybe time and your patience permitting, we can have a little uh, time for maybe a discussion for why Secretary Kerry uh, thought that this would be such an appropriate setting to bring his Chinese guest. So uh, let me start uh, first with a quiz. I'm a professor, so I like quizzes. Uh, how many of you, show of hands, have either uh, seen uh, the HBO series, John Adams, or read the wonderful biography upon which it's based by David McCullough? Okay, hands down. A very learned crowd. Uh, for those of you who are more honest and did not raise your hands, uh, let me summarize this for you. Uh, John Adams, this is not John Quincy, this is his father, was very smart. He knew it. <laughs> he wanted you to know it. Uh, and as you might guess, he was somewhat obnoxious about it. Uh, well, in the Adams uh, household, the apple did not fall very far from the tree. And if you remember anything uh, about the movie uh, and little Johnny, uh, you'll remember that he was an exceptionally bright young man, uh, a dutiful son, and an insufferable brat. Uh, but I think it's important to note when we cast our minds back to American history uh, that there are reasons to remember him uh, other and beyond simply being an unsufferable brat. Um, so let me sketch to you his life really quickly. He is brought as a young man before he's even 10 years old with his father in the midst of the American Revolution to Europe. And he witnesses the birth of American foreign policy and statecraft next to his father. When he returns home to matriculate at Harvard, where he has those scurrilous things to say about Yale on the way, he is perhaps the most well-traveled American. He is appointed at the tender age of 27 
as American minister to the Netherlands, one of only five uh, American diplomatic postings abroad, and goes on to a very successful career as a diplomat under President Washington, uh, President Adams, that would be his father, and President uh, Madison. He follows us up with uh, being appointed Secretary of State under President Monroe. He holds this post for all eight years of the administration. He's generally thought of as perhaps the most accomplished Secretary of State in U.S. history and is generally given credit with extending American borders all the way out to the Pacific for the first time. So I'm seeing some nodding heads, right? I mean, pretty successful. Well, he follows these successes up with perhaps the low point of his entire professional career. He's elected president of the United States. Uh, and I actually don't mean that much of uh, as a joke because he really does see this as the low point of his own career. Uh, it's something of a failure of a presidency, although the ideas that he seeds into the political discourse really do shape the most progressive vision of government, perhaps until FDR more than 100 years later. Well, if that's not enough for you, he then retires, and for an Adams, a retirement means about two to three months max, uh, runs for Congress, becomes a congressman post-presidency for Massachusetts, retains that post for the final 17 years of his life until he literally drops dead on the floor of Congress. Um, Adams, as a young man, uh, obviously lives not only with the most famous parents in all of American history, John and Abigail Adams, but also spent some time living with Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin. Uh, as a adult, he shares the national stage with Andrew Jackson, with Henry Clay, and with John Calhoun. And as an old man in the final Congress, he is actually rubbing shoulders with the young Abraham Lincoln, who's there in his one term as congressman before he goes in. Um, when he's abroad, he meets the most important people of the era, including Austria's Prince Metternich, Tsar uh, Alexander uh, I of Russia, and even Napoleon Bonaparte. When famous people come to the United States, they seek out Adams. This includes Charles Dickens. Uh, this includes Alexis de Tocqueville. Uh, this includes the Marquis de Lafayette, and with good reason. I mean, this is the man who single-handedly writes the Monroe Doctrine. This is the man who, as a young man, has a amazingly influencing effect on Washington's farewell address. And he is the man, too, who seeds the ideas that eventually become the Emancipation Proclamation, although that does not happen until after his death. Uh, so, in fact, his career is so wide-ranging and covers so much territory that Adams has something of a Forrest Gump-like effect on American history. Uh, if you remember the movie, right, with every famous person, with almost every famous and major event in early American history, there's John Quincy Adams, either center stage or maybe just off stage left. Uh, and so I want to take this opportunity to really remind you all of your seventh grade American history course, which you've probably forgotten. So let me back this assertion up with some evidence. So, for instance, the Battle of Bunker Hill, 1775. Well, Little Johnny's only seven years old, but he climbs the hill with his mother and watches the cannon shots that are going on. Uh, the Jays Treaty, the first major diplomatic treaty of the young United States, as a young diplomat on his first assignment, uh, young Quincy sails across the Atlantic with the draft of this in his pocket for Mr. Jay. The War of 1812. Uh, well, here you see uh, Adams. Now he's bald. He's in the middle, and he's the chief negotiator uh, ending this war. The Monroe Doctrine I already mentioned. Uh, it is actually 
the Adams Doctrine because it is several paragraphs inserted into the final annual address by President Monroe that Adams himself writes. Uh, the gag rule, I, I'm hoping I'm stretching those minds, right? Oh, no, we have a very learned crowd. I'm seeing heads nodding. So the gag rule, right, uh, is a rule in the Congress that slavery is such not only a divisive but explosive issue that it's gagged, right, in general. You cannot even mention the word slavery on the floor of the Congress in general because it's too divisive. But actually, it has a more specific purpose. It's drafted to gag John Quincy Adams because he keeps bringing petitions to the floor of Congress to take this on. Uh, final example here, uh, Amistad. Some of you might have remembered seeing that uh, movie uh, about 15 years ago. Wonderful depiction, I think, of John Quincy Adams that, where Anthony Hopkins played him. Uh, well, this is uh, John Quincy Adams takes, while he's a congressman, to the Supreme Court arguing on behalf of the Amistad Africans who have revolted and ends up winning their freedom. Um, so, uh, I hope you get the point here, right? John Quincy Adams is everywhere in early American history. Uh, he is amazingly uh, talented. Um, you should think even about the multiplicity of roles that he undertakes. I mean, he is a lawyer. He's a diplomat. He's a politician. He's a political essayist. He's a statesman, of course. He is a poet. He's a lifelong advocate of science and technology. He is an excellent... Uh, uh, amateur astronomer. He is the first advocate of horticulturalism within the White House and begins planting some of the trees that you see today. He's a terrific wine connoisseur in and of himself. So you can understand that he's got a lot of talents going on, but I think that there's another reason uh, why Adams is so interesting. And it's because I argue he's the first grand strategist in American history. And it's his vision of the United States uh, that implicitly shapes America's drive to first continental, then hemispheric, and ultimately global preeminence. Now, uh, a second ago, I said implicitly shapes, right? Because he never sat down and wrote out his worldview in prose. But that is not for lack of evidence. So I've given you a couple of images of some of his many, many, many writings. Uh, let, let me just throw out what some of these are in case, in case you can't see some of them in the back. He writes letters on everything. I mean, he's a politician, right? So he is constantly giving speeches. He gives one speech on the floor of Congress that lasts for three weeks straight. Uh, he is writing uh, lessons on how to interpret the Bible that get published across the nation. He is writing um, lessons on how he thinks Shakespeare should best be performed. He is writing a history of the political parties in the United States. He's writing and then abandoning a biography of his father. Uh, he is writing on everything. And in fact, during my research, uh, what I found most fun uh, was this find, a 266 stanza four canto poem on Richard II's 12th century conquest of Ireland. Now, this is only half the story, though, because these are his public writings. And what you really, uh, I found of most interest and really informed this project was his private writings. Now, he starts writing a diary when he is not even 10 years old. And it amounts to a 51 volume, more than 17,000 page diary. It is literally, potentially, literally potentially, uh, the largest resource of American politics, foreign policy, arts, literature over the entire 19th century. 
And every day from the day that he starts this until literally the day that he drops dead on the floor of Congress, he is writing what he did, who he met, what they discussed, and what he thought about that. And it's this exceptional uh, insight into what he thought he was trying to achieve. Now, at the U.S. Naval War College where I teach, uh, the first uh, lesson that we teach the officers that uh, are subjected to our teaching is that for any strategy to succeed or even have the potential to succeed, you have to first understand what it is you're trying to achieve in the first place. Now, on this, Adams was crystal clear. He thought it was the destiny of the United States to become the most powerful and the most prosperous nation that the world had ever seen. He actually thought it was the word destiny. Destiny litters his diary. You can see it all over the place. That the American Revolution, as embodied in the principles of the Declaration of Independence, was truly the first global ideology that would spread around the world and influence the world. People are nodding their heads. But you shouldn't be. Because destiny is not a strategy. Right? Destiny is something that you like the vision of. And in fact, having the vision is very important. But you also have to be able to not only assess the environment that you're operating in, in order to come up with strategies that might help you pursue that vision. Now, Adams was pretty good, I think, in scoping what the vision was. Right? It's not just destiny. It's the destiny to strengthen, solidify, and expand and perpetuate the republic and the idea of republicanism. That was his vision. But he had an acute understanding, I think, of the threats and challenges that faced America before he could even begin to develop strategies. Now, some of you uh, might remember some of these uh, rather sanitized uh, issues uh, or images, I should say, rather, of American westward expansion that you saw in your own high school history books, right? And take a look. I mean, uh, yes, there are some Native Americans. They're kind of on the side. They look sad. But these are images distinctly not from a Native American perspective, right? These are what we call manifest destiny, right? That it was in the destiny of America to expand across the continent. Uh, you know, you think of uh, John Milton's Paradise Lost. Um, all they had to do, the final lines of Paradise Lost, right? Uh, where they would lend their heads and providence their guide. Uh, in this rendering, in this understanding of American history, all the Americans had to do was simply march west into the sunlight across the continent. It was theirs for the taking. Now, to be sure, uh, Americans had some reasons for optimism uh, at the early stages of the Republic. Uh, they had not only one, but two oceans separating them from the rest of the world, certainly from Europe. They had a growing uh, population that was very commercially minded, and they had a government set up to safeguard civil liberties. Uh, but those were really more aspirational than they were facts. And if you take a look at the cover of my book, uh, if you squint really hard, you'll see that there's a map uh, that was very deliberately chosen behind it. And if you can't squint, here, I'll help you. This is what that image is. Uh, this is a 1775 map of the United States of America, and the legend is really important. The legend here says, North America as divided 
among the European powers. And on the map, you'll see British, French, Spanish, and Russian territorial claims on the North American continent. Right? So when the founding generation thought about the environment in which they lived, this is not what they thought about. This is not the image that was in their heads. The image that was in their heads probably looks something a lot more like this. Uh, now, this is not uh, during the founding generation. This is a, you know, a political cartoon of William Pitt and Napoleon Bonaparte carving up the world. But this is what they thought about, or this one, which I really like. Uh, here you have the European behemoth having lugged itself across uh, the Atlantic to threaten uh, Colombia, to threaten liberty. This is really the image that most of the American founders had in their head of a young republic with immature institutions that was doing something pretty novel as compared to the major power centers of the world at the time who despised this experiment. Now, these were the external threats uh, that threatened uh, the American Republic at the outset, but these were not the only threats that faced America. Uh, you also had the internal threat or the potential for threat, uh, really, of slavery and of partisan politics. Now, it's important to note that at the founding of the Republic, neither of these threats were particularly acute, but both of them had the potential to destroy the Republic from within. Now, in addition to, if we're kind of scoping the strategic environment that they're in, the external threats and the internal threats, uh, there's one more threat that I would add to this one. It's something uh, that I might call a psychological threat. Right? Adams was particularly worried uh, that Americans had a tendency uh, to not run, but to sprint before they had learned to crawl. Uh, otherwise known as Americans got so excited Every time they heard about a foreign revolution that perhaps looked somewhat vaguely like the American Revolution, that they were willing to support it. And Adams was very worried that with the precious resources of the Republic as a developing state, they would cede their own strength and resources away and not be able to build up their own Republic. So these are the threats, right? We've talked about the vision. So what is the strategy that Adams came up with? Uh, well, I argue that you have a threefold strategy that Adams comes up with to vindicate the Republic and the idea of Republicanism itself. And in very kind of hand-waving gestures, I would say they are physical security, national development, and morality. Uh, so let me talk a little bit about each one. Uh, physical security first. Uh, go back to this map. Uh, right, uh, the one from 1775. Now, physical security meant that this, right, North America as divided among the European powers had to be not divided, right? You had to preclude and undermine and push the European powers' territorial claims out of North America. Uh, now, Adams thought that a lot of this would happen rather naturally, uh, right? That as the American public expanded and pushed westward, it would begin to just conquer these lands, or they would naturally, by attractive power, fold into the young republic. But he also wanted to make sure that there was no pretext given for the European powers to intervene forcibly in the North American continent. Now, this was particularly true in a world, if you think about the late 18th, early 19th century, that is riven particularly by Anglo-French uh, colonial and commercial rivalry. 
right? So if the young republic wants to be able to exist, uh, to expand, to say no to either London or Paris, Adams would argue throughout his career that it would need the means to do so. You can't just say no and hope that they will listen. And specifically, that actually meant having a navy uh, and a powerful navy. And so Adams, from uh, the time of his childhood, uh, he's a New Englander, this makes sense, straight through his presidency, where he advocates for the founding of a naval academy, it doesn't happen until later, is a large proponent of America building a navy to use as a deterrent force and threat against the European powers. But Adams uh, knew the political landscape and had a problem. Americans enjoyed taxing themselves then about as much as we do now. And so Adams was quite worried consistently that absenting existential threat, extending, uh, absenting a national emergency, Americans would not tax themselves at a sufficiently high rate to provide for the common defense. Now, second, uh, the Navy was not an end, right? It was a means unto an end. This was the end. Uh, I love this image, right? This is the American eagle spreading its wings and its talons across the North American continent. It's an 1834 image. Uh, of course, it looks more like the American pigeon spreading his wings across the North American continent. But actually, the image says a lot, right? The end here is American hegemony, American control over the North American continent. And this uh, strategy can see, be seen most clearly during Adams's uh, eight-year tenure as Secretary of State, where he is working assiduously to push British, French, Spanish, and Russian claims out of North America. And he does this by actually rather shrewdly combining force and diplomacy. So if you look north, you don't have to look north, I'm just saying, if one were to look north, and you see the British, and coming out of the War of 1812, uh, and the Napoleonic Wars, which have lasted, they are the predominant power in the world and much strengthened relatively compared with anyone else. So it actually makes some sense in Winston Churchill's words to jaw jaw before your war war. So in the first two years of his tenure as Secretary of State, he sets up not one but two uh, diplomatic agreements with the British to postpone any kind of border agreement and push it as far west until later, which actually plays to American strengths. Time is actually playing to their strengths here. However, if that makes sense with the British, who are really strong, what about with the Spanish, who are the opposite of this, who have been kind of deteriorating in strength in Adams's mind for the last 200 years? Now, you look at the uh, talons and the claws, and that's Florida, but of course it was Spanish Florida at the time. So Adams says that it is in his interest uh, that the United States use force, or at least the threat of force, to shock and awe the Spanish to actually not only pull out, but give them as favorable a territorial boundary line as possible. And this is where you get the agreement to push American boundaries out to the Pacific for the first time. Now, I've just uh, argued that Adams really understands uh, the use of force and when to use it. But he also understands when to use restraint. So during his tenure as Secretary of State, there are multiple revolutions happening around the world. Uh, the Greeks are rebelling from the Ottoman Turks. There are a series of revolutions going on all over South America against the Spanish. And in each one of these revolutions, you have 
diplomats, you have advocates of them appealing to Washington for Washington's help. Washington's help morally, Washington's help financially, Washington's help with ships, navy, and fighting men as well. And it's important to note that if we kind of transpose ourselves back in our time machine to 1821, 1823, these are enormously popular uh, revolutions. Because all the people who come to Washington to lobby on their behalf say, we are doing exactly what you did. The Declaration of Independence is our model. Can't you help us? Washington is agog in this, is really excited by this. There are torchlight parades all over the country. I mean, the, the Greek colonial revival that you see in architecture around America traces back to this period uh, when we're thinking about the Greeks. And in fact, the president himself, President Monroe, says, I'm over the moon. This is what we're doing, as is the rest of the cabinet, except for Adams. And Adams actually ends up arguing very convincingly that we should not be in support materially of these revolutions, right? This leads to some of his most famous words, right? America is the supporter uh, of and well-wisher of all those around the world, but the defender only of its own. And why does he do this? Uh, I would argue that it's for the exact same reasons that he is arguing for pushing American across uh, the North American continent. He is worried about giving the European powers a pretext to intervene in the North American continent. And abstaining from European affairs, both in Greece, but of course in South America, which is at this point colonially owned by the Europeans, by the Spanish, he thinks by doing these interventions gives them a pretext to intervene. So he counsels restraint at this point, particularly because restraint is important because he thinks that those resources can be better used at this particular time for national development. Which brings me to the second part of his strategy, a plan for national development. Uh, and a plan for national development really with the idea of setting up the long-term growth of the United States. Uh, in fact, Adams, these are some of the images that uh, occur during his presidency. Um, and he is promoting infrastructure. He is promoting new industries. He's promoting what we would today call human capital, investments in American citizens. Uh, this comes broadly through the American system, which is kind of three interlocked uh, proposals, a tariff that will set up barriers so that American infant industries can grow, a national bank, which is going to spur investment in the far west, um, and then also national education um, in, oh, and sorry, and federal funding too for these infrastructure canals and roads projects. Uh, and the idea here to Adams is that foreign policy and national development are flip sides of the same coin. That you have to uh, pursue these simultaneously because this national development is going to make the United States more secure by making it more united and wealthy at home, which means it can then better project power abroad. And so uh, Adams promotes and uh, pushes these during his presidency. In fact, during his inaugural address, his first annual address, uh, improvement is the key word that he pounces on. He actually mentions the word 27 different times during his inaugural address. Uh, but he's an Adam, so he can't leave well enough alone. And he said, it's not just this type of improvement, but we're really talking about improving America's citizens. And this is because he is promoting the idea of republicanism, which means that it has to offer the nation's citizens something better than the old world monarchies, which means that the government has to invest in the populace. 
but of course, what this ends up meaning for Adams is not only in these type of investments, but the improvement culturally, religiously, even morally of the citizens. Uh, I should tell you the punchline now for chapter three. Uh, it goes nowhere. Uh, it's shot down to defeat almost from the get-go. But it's very interesting about where you choose to measure success because, yes, it's shot down to defeat. But these ideas, which he develops jointly with Henry Clay, who becomes his Secretary of State, then go on to light the Whig Party. And the Whig Party then goes on to light and influence the economic development, the national development of the Republican Party of Abraham Lincoln. So these ideas of national development, knitting the nation together, building a transcontinental railroad, which of course Abraham Lincoln undertakes in the midst of the American Civil War, are really framed here for the first time. Uh, final component of Adams's grand strategy, morality. Now, from the beginning, uh, Americans have thought of America not only as a geographical place, but as an idea as much as it is an ideology. And for this ideology to be universally applicable, which many Americans have always thought it should be, it needs to be morally compelling and logically persuasive. And for that to happen, America's ideals have to align with America's actions which of course means taking on slavery. Now, slavery is such a vexing question for the young republic because it is fundamentally at odds with the Declaration of Independence's assertions that all human beings are created equal. And yet, it is woven into the very fabric of America because, of course, the Constitution itself implicitly endorses it with the three-fifths clause. This is the contradiction that is at the heart of the young republic. And it's Adams's understanding that until and unless you take on slavery, America cannot influence the world. But he doesn't say this is true universally across the board. As early as 1804, he is saying things like this, that eventually America has to take on the scourge of slavery. But he's also saying it cannot do so at the wrong time. Because if it does so too early, Think of those images of Pitt and Napoleon carving up America. It leaves itself vulnerable to those foreign intrusions. So when he does decide that slavery deserves the full prioritization, the full attention of both the nation and of himself, he does so for three reasons. Uh, first, he believes the United States has grown sufficiently powerful that it can go through its own internal disputes without being cannibalized by the rest of the world you know, different parts of the territory being picked off. Uh, second, failure to take on slavery, Adams has begun to understood, is retarding the economic development of the United States, the progressive development that he sees as that vision of national development. And finally, failure to take on the issue of slavery is compromising what he sees as America's mission to itself and in the world. So he takes on slavery. Uh, this is particularly true during his congressional post-presidential career, and he does so in two main ways, by making two arguments that I'm not sure I would say lead to the Civil War, they don't, but inform the debate that happens before the Civil War and really influence Abraham Lincoln's thinking. So the first is the founding document of the United States is not the Constitution. 
It's the Declaration of Independence. Think of Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, four score and seven years ago, right? He dates it back to the Declaration, not to the Constitution. In fact, Adams is making public speeches for a good 15 years publicly, where he is saying that the Declaration of Independence has the force of law. And you have to understand the Constitution as a secondary document that is framed by the principles thrown out of the Declaration. And if you understand American history in that way, it is inevitable the direction that we much march as a polity. That's one of the arguments that he posits that's really picked up by the Republicans and Lincoln later. The second argument that he makes is only the federal government can do this. This is not something that can be decided state by state. And so, in fact, state sovereignty must be supported subordinated to the federal government. So these three elements of Adams's grand strategy, again, uh, physical security, national development, and morality, uh, I think are linked. I think uh, they show uh, a series of prioritization, and they go a long way to establishing not, and ex helping to explain not only Adams's evolving career, but that bridge between the founders and Lincoln himself. Now, Here's the $1,000 question, the million-dollar question for a historian. So what? I mean, interesting, right? History book. Uh, but when Adams very famously says, America goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy, America is a small, insignificant country in the corner of the world. And so, of course, America can remain neutral in revolutions, in civil wars, in upheavals happening around the world. Now, when Adams is president, I should also note that he goes for a swim uh, every day in the Potomac River naked. Okay, you left because I lied. He wears a pair of green goggles. That's it. And I throw out this kind of rather odd uh, historical tidbit because it is hard to imagine a U.S. president today undertaking either of these two actions, either staying neutral on events happening around the world or going swimming uh, for a skinny dip in the Potomac. Uh, but I do think that if we kind of transpose some of the broader lessons that Adams uh, offered, in fact, there are some really useful lessons as we approach American contemporary foreign policy. So let me sketch uh, at least four of these, uh, and you can tell me if you agree or disagree in questions. Uh, so first, Exercising American power, Adams would argue, means being as conscious of its limits as of its reach. Being as conscious of its limits as of its reach. So paradoxically, if you declare that American power is limitless, you are limiting American power. Right Now, don't mistake this, that Adams says America should always limit its power abroad. He is a firm proponent of American values. He is not shy about using force if he thinks that it lines up behind American interests. But he is constantly making the argument to make sure that American objectives and resources are in line. Because if they're not, you overextend American power and therefore diminish it. Uh, second lesson. The source of American power and when I say American power, we can begin to delineate this in a lot of different ways. Um, militarily, economically, even morally, is domestic. The source of American power is domestic. So before, or maybe as the United States projects its power abroad, it's important to pay as much attention to each of those domestic components of American power as it is anything else that is internationally based. Uh, third, in regard to tyrannical 
and autocratic regimes, Adams would advocate, Adams did advocate, I shouldn't say would advocate, Adams advocated change consistently, but not upheaval. Right? Adams was constantly aware that the peril was at least as great as the promise of upheaval. And so therefore, he made the argument consistently for change, particularly democratic change, always being a good, but that that good emerged oftentimes beyond America's control, organically from within societies. And he was as fearful of violent revolutionary change uh, as he was of interventions. Uh, fourth principle, uh, I call this the sequencing principle, uh, otherwise known as you can't have everything you want at once. Now, Adams, I think, was pretty uh, acutely aware of the various stages that he thought America needed to go, even a developing nation needed to go through to grow to power. It needed to secure itself from foreign attack. It needed to grow up its own uh, defense capabilities. It needed to promote its own national economic development and needed to gradually align its ideals with its actions. But it needed to do this in the right sequence. Uh, you had to know which things you needed to take on now and which you could keep on the back burner because taking some things on too soon would rip the whole thing to shreds. Now, I, I think this goes a pretty long way uh, in explaining why Adams was a grand strategist, right? He had a long-term vision. He had the ability to prioritize amongst his different objectives, and he was able to sequence them uh, in term. And he was acutely aware, even tragically aware, of the trade-offs that that involved. And we could talk about that maybe a little bit more in Q&A. Uh, but if you're not convinced uh, by my argument, uh, let me turn you to potentially uh, the greatest American grand strategist of the 20th century. Uh, this is George uh, F. Kennan, right, the author of The Containment Doctrine. And here he is writing in Foreign Affairs magazine in 1995. This is clearly the wrong image because in 1995, George Kennan was 91 years young. Uh, but this is what he had to say. This writer, for one, finds Adams's principle, albeit with certain adjustments to meet our present circumstances and commitments, entirely suitable and indeed greatly needed as a guide for American policy in the coming period. And if you're unconvinced by George Kennan, let me turn you to my old boss, Secretary Kerry, who I think understood this implicitly. And his expression really says it all in wonderment of the Adamses. Uh, at this point, uh, let me stop talking uh, and turn it over to you, and we can go anywhere you want on either the 19th, 20th, or 21st century. Yeah, Sir. I have a little time, but I, I'm puzzled, maybe but I wondered about how long was he in Russia with Jay? Pretty young. Right. So he goes to Russia not once but twice, uh, which you've alluded to. So the first is I mentioned that he goes over uh, during the American Revolution to Europe where his father's helping to negotiate loans and then eventually um, negotiate the peace treaty ending the American Revolution. Well, he gets training uh, right in French, which is the lingua franca for diplomacy. And Francis Dana, who's originally John Adams's secretary, uh, we decide, look, you need as many friends as you can during the American Revolution. So there's a big country somewhere out there named Russia. So let's send this guy. So Francis Dana goes out. The problem is he can't speak French. 
so how is he going to survive in Catherine's court in St. Petersburg? And so they look around and there's young Johnny and he's already mastered French and he is 13 years old. And so he goes off to Russia for about two plus years uh, without his parents, just with uh, Francis Dana to a place that doesn't speak English where you don't have formalized schools either. And he's there. And of course, Abigail is kind of knocking him over the head because young Johnny never writes back to her uh, at all. Uh, but he always is writing back to his father. So he's there for about two years at that time. Uh, he then comes back, uh, I sketched kind of his career, but he goes into politics. He's in the uh, Senate. It's an interesting story for why he ends up in the Senate, if someone wants to ask. Uh, but basically is um, recalled from the Senate by Massachusetts recalled from the Senate before his term ends by Massachusetts because he is so unpopular. Uh, he's made a decision. This is like a constant in Adams's career. But the reason he's unpopular is because he has in many ways crossed the aisle. He has gone ahead with supporting Jefferson's administration, which is promoting westward expansion. There are multiple reasons for why he's doing this, but he thinks his career is over and then he is rescued by President Madison who he knew when he was Secretary of State and he was a senator and sent to be America's first minister, first ambassador to St. Petersburg. And so he sails over in about 1810. And he's there and his diaries actually get really interesting at this point because he is there during the War of 1812. Uh, and he is there and actually witnesses the French troops marching and burning uh, Moscow. Uh, but he, at this point, because he's the man on the scene, he's probably America's most talented and most experienced diplomat. Uh, America, right, is involved in the War of 1812. Americans don't understand the War of 1812. Uh, the War of 1812 is a blip in the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, but you need to negotiate an end to it. So there's a delegation. John Quincy Adams is the man on the spot. So he leads the delegation. But he moves from Moscow to Ghent, where it's then negotiated. Uh, and actually goes without his family, his wife, and his youngest son, Charles Francis Adams, are in Moscow. There's a fabulous book that came out uh, not too long ago. Uh, about how uh, Louisa Catherine, his wife, and his youngest son, Charles Francis Adams, make the journey on their own to join him in Ghent uh, and then Paris during Napoleon's Hundred Days. Uh, and yeah, Mrs. Adams's Winter, I think it's called. It's a terrific book, but that, that's a very long answer for you about how long he was there for. Did he speak Dutch as well? Uh, I, he spoke seven different languages at one point. Yes. Yes. So they have to. Uh, so he does speak Dutch uh, because at one point when they are in the, the Netherlands, he begins attending university classes when he's like 13 years old. Uh, and so you're not going to do too well if you can't understand the language. So yes, he does pick up Dutch as well, and that is of course his first diplomatic posting, and it makes sense because he can speak Dutch at that point. Uh, other questions? Uh, yes. Have you read his extensive? Yes, kind of. Uh, so look. <laughs> Uh, 17,000 pages is a lot. Uh, and as I said, that's only the private correspondence because the public writings and the correspondence, so sorry, 17,000 pages is just the diary. Uh, there's also the correspondence. Uh, there's also all the public writings. So no, I have not read everything that he had ever wrote. And it's possible that I was lying to all of you when I said that there does not exist his worldview, his grand strategy and prose. I just haven't seen that document. I've read thousands of pages. Uh, thousands of pages. And actually, you know, as kind of as a historian, you understand this too. Um, it's really important to read the documents. 
to allow yourself to kind of swim in your subjects minds uh, before you begin to analyze them uh, because when you begin to read these documents you begin to see interesting patterns uh, interesting things that seem to be fairly consistent from the 1790s through the 1840s which is remarkable and just as interesting the inconsistencies and the contradictions where he changes himself which in some ways when you see a contradiction as a historian that's an aha moment right that's a really important moment because then you say well why are there contradictions here what have i not understand or where did they change so uh several thousand pages uh not all the thousands of pages <laughs> ma'am Yes, no, yes. Does that answer the questions? Uh, let me take these on one at a time. Uh, so uh, first, the, uh, the Native American uh, question. So uh, I think that he was uh, clear-eyed about this, that he thought it was tragic and potentially unavoidable what was going to happen and felt aggrieved by it but didn't see a way out of it. Now, let me back up for a little bit. Um, when he is Secretary of State, he is making arguments uh, for and countenancing for the removal of various Indian tribes so that the American settlers can roll either southwards into various parts of Florida or westwards. When he becomes president, he becomes particularly worried about this question. And in fact, there's an incident that happens with the state of Georgia, where you have an exceedingly aggressive state uh, governor of Georgia, who is uh, shady does not begin to describe what he has done uh, to the various uh, you know, Creek and Cherokee uh, Indian tribes in there. And Adams says, as president, this cannot stand you're cheating and you're simply lying uh, on the negotiations that you've done. And this won't stand. And, of course, uh, the response from the Georgia governor is, who is going to make me? Who is going to make me treat them fairly? And 
the response from Washington is, well, maybe the federal government, but in what form? Because does this actually mean marching the federal army into the Georgia territory? And during this particular incident, it kind of, you know, you've had already the Missouri Compromise, which opens up this idea that you might have extreme political violence within the nation. But again, now flash forward about seven or eight years to this issue of Indian removal. And you have surprisingly the only time when Adams is president that Andrew Jackson agrees with him, right? Because Andrew Jackson's in fierce opposition with him from the beginning. Uh, Jackson says, well, you should march the army into Georgia to teach them a lesson about the dominance of the federal government. And in fact, you can see this idea playing out during Andrew Jackson's presidency with South Carolina. But John Quincy Adams is not Andrew Jackson and is a deeply unpopular president. Uh, I mentioned that all of his programs fail because the political opposition is so high from the very outset that he does not think it right, sequencing, to risk an outright civil war if you march the Union Army, if you march the Federal Army into Georgia. So he actually writes, of course, in his diary how tragic this is uh, for the Native American population, but he does not see what he can do about it to stop this tidal wave. Uh, in terms of the other two, let me just sketch these uh, uh, very briefly. Um, medicine, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not exactly sure about medicine, but I can speak more broadly about science and science and technology, really. I mean, he is a, a proponent, a firm proponent of science being brought to America from the most developed place in the world, from Europe. And in fact, uh, he's such a great politician that in his inaugural address, he says, look at Europe. Uh, the forefront of exploration at this point is both kind of sailing ships all over the world, uh, zoological expeditions, botanical expeditions, and beginning to map the skies, right? Astronomy. And look at Europe. They have 24 observatories, lighthouses of the sky. We have none. This is shameful. You know, this is meant as a spur like John Kennedy's space race. Of course, this comes across as the Europeans are great and we're not. And in fact, the tagline of his inaugural address is lighthouses of the sky. What would you like to actually do for us? And so the funding for this is really stymied in a lot of ways and not undertaken. And I can use this as a bridge to answer your second question, which is in terms of melding. Uh, and I'm not even necessarily talking about distinct ethnical, ethnic geographical pockets, but he does have this idea on the one hand that you really do need to meld and knit the nation together. Uh, and the way that you are going to do this is by infrastructure development, right? You can't have the far west, i.e. Kentucky, uh, knit in together, melded with either the south or New England without roads, and so he is constantly pushing. This is the main thing that he pushes a uh, policy platform of his presidency, internal improvements for this. He simultaneously thinks that while it's fine for there to be regional and distinct cultures, you need a national culture. And so he thinks he's proposing something very innocuous in terms of a national university that will bring you know, the greatest young men and women, men at this time, to the nation's capital to understand American culture.
In fact, this isn't radical. This is exactly what George Washington said in his farewell address. He also thinks that standing up a naval academy, which I mentioned previously, is not a radical idea. It's just what George Washington mentioned. Uh, and in fact, we already have one up at West Point. Uh, both of these ideas are uh, shot down uh, at the time. Uh, I could talk more about the failures of his presidency, but that's how he thinks about and approaches some of those issues. Uh, sir, right there in the back. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Ego, first of all, thank you very much for your contributions here. This is uh, one of what I think is a, a continuing collection of yeah. excellent books on, on the Adamses that have come out with their opinions ten years or so. In your introductory remarks, you, you allude to the fact that Americans are taught differently about the Adams. Adams is one of them seventh grade or high school or even in college. Yeah. Now, is there more territory that can be covered here on the Adams story by historians? And if so, will that help change the way in which our educational system teaches American history, early American history, the role of the Adams is going to play? Um, yes. Uh, I'd love to go on a speaking tour all around America. No, to take your question a, a little bit uh, more seriously uh, than a flip answer, uh, of course, um, and I actually think you have kind of a couple of different factors which are getting us there slowly. Uh, one is that HBO series was terrific. It was actually very good, um, and it revived interest uh, in this issue. Uh, second, I mean, for the founders, there is a, there's, look, there's a perpetual interest in the founders. Uh, but there's been a really useful, I think, revival of it. Uh, part of this hangs maybe around Broadway and Hamilton itself. But part of this actually is a historical generation uh, issue. That is there more um, ground to be covered? There is. Uh, because one of the things that's been very interesting is that I mentioned there are 51 volumes of the Adams Diaries. Um, over the last decade or so, the Presidential Paper series has begun to actually go back and publish in full the papers of George Washington, uh, John Adams, uh, Thomas Jefferson. It goes forward. But uh, interestingly enough, as this archive really opens up, the, the Massachusetts Historical Society has all of the Adams papers. Uh, it's open to the public. Actually, almost all the diaries are digitized, and you can look them up. And his handwriting is really good until he has a stroke right at the end. Um, but it's an ongoing project. And so in some ways, historians are actually coming into this gold mine that hadn't been there before. Uh, so I can speak you know, better about the Adamses than I can about others, but uh, Adams actually has his diary published uh, twice before the ongoing project. So first it's published by his son, Charles Francis. Um, but as any good, dutiful son, he doesn't put in anything that might embarrass the family and he doesn't put in anything that might show you that the atoms were humans, uh, that they had emotions. And so actually on the digitized copies now, if you look on them on the Massachusetts Historical Society, you can see small pencil brackets, uh, which is what uh, Charles Francis wanted to include and the rest is dropped out. Uh, now, they were again published in 13 volumes in the early 20th century, but that was a little bit fuller, but really aligned behind the political development. So some of these other things are now coming onto line is opening up the archive. So I think there's a revival uh, in that way. Uh, one thing I would say, though, on this is I, I love the Adamses. I, I think they're great, but it's important to note they're not very lovable. 
Um, and this has been a problem for them. This is, you know, David McCullough's mission is he wants to bring an Adams Memorial to Washington, D.C. Uh, but there is something to be said, and now I'm talking about one particular family as opposed to the broader range of founding fathers and founding sons here, that um, the problem has for so long been that they seem like they're in marble, right? And that how could we possibly learn anything from them because we can't possibly ever hope to emulate them. And that's, of course, far from the truth. Uh, these are imperfect individuals uh, who do extraordinary things. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think the popularizers uh, who are really good historians, uh, Joseph Ellis, I point to as one, have been terrific on this. Uh, last thought for this. Uh, Years ago, I mean, when I was teaching high school history in New York City, uh, I had the extraordinary um, uh, opportunity of meeting David McCullough just in passing. And we started talking about teaching history. Um, and he made the point, and I like this a lot, um, that he asked me how I was teaching history to my students. And I explained, and he said, you know, one of the things that I've been a proponent of and trying to promote in grade schools is having more plays. Uh, and his point was, if you play John Adams, if you play Frederick Douglass, if you play Alexander Hamilton, if you play Sacagawea, any one of the very important you know, members of American history, you will never forget that person. Uh, and that's not, of course, how it's always taught. Uh, that's not where the pageant plays are. But I thought it was a really interesting idea. You had a question? Three, okay. Yes. That's a weird family. Um, all right, let me uh, kind of see if I can answer all of these. Um, uh, so where does the opposition to his presidency come from? When he has this very full, whether or not you agree or disagree with the vision of America, why does he have no ability to put this forward? And actually, this is even a deeper mystery because the question about Adams, uh, about Quincy Adams is, look, uh, you have this extraordinarily talented diplomat, extraordinarily talented who is an abject failure in many regards during his presidency. And how do you explain those two? They don't seem to make sense together. So uh, the first part of the answer to that question is you have to understand how he became president. So in the election of 1824, you do not have political parties. Um, the two-party system that had been around before that, you have the Jeffersonian Republicans, who are now called the National Republicans, and you have the Federalists, the New England Federalists. But the New England Federalists have been busy shooting themselves in the head. Uh, in the aftermath of the War of 1812, there's the Hartford Convention, where the New England Federalists begin to make public calls for secession from the United States of America. Because the War of 1812 to New England is a really dumb war. They are a commercial, commercially-minded geographical region that trades with England. This makes no sense. And the war doesn't seem to be going very well for the beginning. Washington, D.C. itself is burned. So you begin to have the call for secession 
to the United States. And so for that reason, they become an increasingly irrelevant and toxic party. And so you have amalgamation, whereas the National Republicans begin to take everything on. So what happens in the 1824 election is you don't really have two different parties. You just have a lot of candidates. Now, if you think about Adams's base, on the one hand, right, his base is his position, uh, because the three succeeding presidents have been Secretary of State before they became president. But John Quincy Adams has also been out of the country for most of his entire adult life. He has alienated himself from most of New England, and he's not a Virginian. So who is going to support, where does his natural political base come from? And it's unclear. Meanwhile, Andrew Jackson, our first political general, uh, decides to run. And so there are a lot of kind of contingencies that happen, but basically you have a four-way race uh, on this. Henry Clay, uh, well, John Calhoun drops out, so it's Henry Clay, William Crawford, who's the Secretary of Treasury, uh, Adams, and Jackson. Now, Clay gets, the way that the Constitution works is, uh, at that time, the top three vote-getters, if there's not enough electoral votes, and there are not, get thrown into the House, which then votes on who becomes president. Clay is the fourth highest vote-getter. He also is the Speaker of the House, so he becomes enormously important. Um, William Crawford, who in some ways is the most typical of the Virginians, has had a stroke. So he's not going to become president. Uh, and basically, uh, again, seventh grade American history says that there's a corrupt bargain, right? That John Quincy Adams is offered the presidency by Henry Clay, as long as Henry Clay, who as Speaker of the House can swing the votes, as long as he gets to become Secretary of State. Um, it's not true. Um, uh, there are lots of things to suggest that there might have been a meeting of minds, and he does, in fact, become Secretary of State. Uh, Adams loses uh, the popular vote, but Henry Clay himself hates Andrew Jackson more than anything in the country and has been making floor speeches from Congress that this is your Caesar, uh, and this is the most dangerous threat to the republic, and they agree on policies. But because of the way that he becomes president, his opponents begin to allege there's corruption. There's a corrupt bargain, and we can all see it because Clay became Secretary of State. So from the very beginning, the opposition begins to look for issues around which to coalesce. Uh, and so the first thing that really comes up actually has to do with Latin America, and they begin to hammer the administration. Um, so to, let me actually answer the question, because I think it's really important about what could he have done differently? Uh, that would have allowed this to maybe not been quite uh, so disastrous of a presidency. Um, he could not have been an Adams. He's very, very strong-willed and doesn't believe in compromise for the most part. And as a diplomat, that has served him extraordinarily well. As a politician, it has served him less well. Uh, second, he thinks that for the deals that he has had to make in order to gain the throne. He talks about Macbeth a lot of, the, uh, a lot of uh, the time during this. He actually writes a policy memorandum to himself entitled the Macbeth campaign. Uh, by the way, if any of you have ever seen Macbeth, this is not a particularly auspicious uh, memorandum or kind of uh, you know inspiration. Uh, but he thinks that the only way that he can redeem the circumstances under which he became president is, look, he has nothing higher to aspire to. 
So he's going to go for everything. And so actually it's interesting because his sense of calculation seems to abandon him at this point. And I think part of this has to do because of the circumstances with which he became president and he wants to redeem them. So in his cabinet, he actually floats his very ambitious program and is told by every member of his cabinet, hey boss, sounds like a good idea, do not do this. You are going to incite the opposition for this. And Adams gathers this advice and says, thank you for the advice. I'm president. Why else would I be president if I weren't willing to do what I think is right? Uh, and then finally, uh, I think, you know, American politics structurally is changing at this point. This goes to your question a little bit too, that you have added more states. The way people can vote and who can vote is changing at this time. And the Democrats, the Jacksonian Democrats, were not yet a party, but become a party, coalesce in opposition during his presidency, are looking for an issue and this popularism that they can think about how to incite it, how to use it, how to harness it, is working for them. And in fact, Henry Clay, who is probably the smartest politician, the smartest political mind at this point, comes to Adams regularly as Secretary of State, but as his chief political counsel and says, boss, we got to take advantage. They are forming a party. There are, there are two parties again. The Postmaster General, an enormously influential person because they hand out patronage right to everyone in their neighborhood, um, who you have appointed is appointing Jacksonians, people who are against your presidency. Fire him. Uh, this happens also on various kind of commissions within the Navy. Uh, Jacksonians who are promoting him. This happens within the Treasury. And Adams is caught on the horns of the dilemma. right? He thinks that if he fires them, he will give ammunition to his critics who say that he has done this simply for himself. So uh, structurally, he's caught in a hard place because American politics is changing. But also, what has made him successful to this point is what will not allow him to be successful here. Um, okay, uh, skinny dipping, I don't know. He's kind of an odd bird. Uh, and Please, sir. It was going on for a long time before this, as you can see, some 17th century painting. But when I was a boy... Sir, you're not making the argument that you were around during the 17th century Dutch paintings. I know that. That references the beginning of it. But when I was a boy at the Y, you went swimming in the black pool, and when I was in college, at an all-male college, when we went swimming, we went swimming naked in the, in the gym pool. It's like an American cultural thing. <laughs> Make of it what you will. <laughs> it's generally, you know, the, the way it was done in all, all the countries in the West. Now, there is a great, uh, somewhat apocryphal story, just because I say somewhat because it's mentioned everywhere, but I haven't found conclusive evidence for it. So I put it in my book, but I say it's apocryphal. Uh, that one day uh, he's swimming and there's an enterprising young female uh, journalist who really wants to nail down an interview with the president and he doesn't want to give the interview. And so he goes down to the Potomac every day. I mean, the route is pretty regular. So the apocryphal story is that he comes back from swimming and he can't find his clothes anywhere. And he swims 100 yards upstream, and he eventually finds this lovely young journalist who's sitting on his clothes. Uh, again, I do say this is apocryphal, but says you can have him back if you give me the interview. And he does. <laughs> um, let me defer the question on intervention, because maybe I can take it on a little bit later, too. He goes swimming out in the Potomac. Yep. 
and actually nearly drowns during his presidency at, at more than one occasion. Um, sir. I have a question about, you mentioned some of the Shakespeare plays, mm -hmm. this sense of the tragic that, that Adams has. Where does it come from? What are the intellectual sources of it? It seems like he unites in the person of himself, as you we were saying earlier, a contradiction to the American optimism of being sort of geographically situated right. in a safe environment, but also this sense of, of I don't want to say pessimism, but more, more of a tragedy about where power can lead, why things should be gradual, the dangers of revolution. Where does that come from in his intellectual heritage? Uh, that's a, a great question. Uh, so, a couple different thoughts for you. First of all, he is a New Englander. Uh, this, I mean, no, this is the answer. I mean, it's kind of a New England puritanical worldview that seeps into the culture in which he is educated by his parents. Um, and that uh, the classics that this is one of the uh, and this answers your question, too, about why he is not capable, maybe, of being more compromising when he becomes president. Because the classics that he reads as a boy, uh, you know, from the Greeks to the Romans uh, to Bolingbroke uh, during the English Enlightenment, uh, he is steeped into his idea, into his self, that there is an ideal of the selfless patriot, uh, the statesman. And of course, this causes so much angst for him because uh, there's an ideal that very, is very hard to meet up with the reality of politics. And so it causes him a lot of friction through his life. Uh, and in fact, his parents don't really help this along that much. Um, that I said that the two most famous parents in American history, in many ways true, but if you read the correspondence, when he's like a little nine and 10 year old, and sailing across the Atlantic, by the way, a very iffy proposition, no less in the middle of the war, he gets letters uh, from his uh, mother that go something like this. Uh, you know, dear young Johnny, you've sailed off. He doesn't see his mom for about eight years uh, during his youth. Um, I hope that you keep up your morals. And if you do not, in the temptations of Europe, it would be better that you go down to the bottom of the ocean. This is the line that he gets with his mother over and over again. The line from his father is, you have come into this world, this is very puritanical, right? New England puritanism, uh, imbued with certain advantages that most Americans do not have. That is, of course, manifestly true. If you do not rise to the top, not only of your profession, but of this country, you will be an embarrassment. And so the way that you see this played out from a human toll if you are an Adams male, one of two things happens to you. You become president of the United States, or you drink yourself to the death by the age of 30. And that's not an exaggeration. Uh, there is a large streak of alcoholism uh, within the Adamses. If you read the Adams family history, it's a rather tragic one. Of course, only John and John Quincy go on to become presidents, but Charles Francis, the little one who's in uh, Russia with his mother becomes American ambassador to the court of St. James to England during the American Civil War. Enormously important, actually helps to keep England out of the war and from recognizing the Confederacy. Uh, John Quincy's grandsons, uh, both Brooks uh, and Henry Adams, two of the most famous historians of all uh, of American history. And that's about it. Um, uh, now, I have to be very careful. This is Washington. It's not um, New England. I always get like a sneak Adams family member in the audience when I'm giving this talk in New England. 
Um, one gentleman once raised his hand and said to me, I'll have you know I am an Adams and I'm from the alcoholic side of the family. Uh, but one kind of follow-up for this, Andrew, because I know as a State Department friend and colleague, you'll appreciate this. Uh, about 10 years ago, uh, a mutual friend of ours, Will, uh, had told me that there indeed was a John Quincy Adams, I don't know, the 17th, wasn't the 17th, working at the State Department on the Vietnam desk. Uh, that's a hard name to live up to uh, there. Uh, so this tragic sense uh, of, you know, it's steeped into him from really his reading of the classics uh, constantly, I think. Uh, sir. Sure. I mean, just a couple of thoughts in addition to the ones that I had mentioned. So first of all, let me just say that I don't think uh, Adams or Trump are unique in having opposition to their foreign policy or even intense opposition. That is a constant in American politics. Uh, I think it would be interesting to see whether or not uh, the president found himself uh, an Adams supporter because, of course, uh, President Trump has rounded himself purposefully with some of the iconography of Andrew Jackson, John Quincy's main opponent. Um, but the two things that I think uh, that, you know, painting with a very broad brushstroke, and we would have to get much more specific on policy application to discuss this in any great detail, um, uh, but are, uh, one, the utmost importance of not abandoning American ideals. Uh, it is, to my mind, woven into Adams's vision of American grand strategy that the point of it is to protect uh, protect, defend, and enlarge the republic and the idea of republicanism. And we say democracy now, they're interchangeable, although they are distinct. Uh, Adams saw this as a key part of America's mission in the world. Um, that is, I think, a difference uh, that we're seeing with the current administration, although their reason for that you know, is nuanced and there are reasons behind that. The second one that I am less clear on is, um, look, uh, I spent a lot of time working in government on um, uh, the Asia-Pacific region. Uh, obviously, North Korea has taken up a lot of time of this uh, administration. Um, what everyone does not yet know, but is holding their breath about, is whether or not the White House is filled with a lot of rhetoric and bluster or whether or not they are meaningfully willing to back this up beyond standoff strikes on Syria. Right? I mean, this is true in many ways on North Korea. And, uh, you know, Adams, I think, during his, particularly during his Secretary of State tenure, uh, had no trouble using large muscle movements of American power in order to make sure that bluffs were not seen as bluffs. I mentioned this at the very beginning of the talk in terms of ensuring that Russia backed away 
from its territorial claims on the Pacific Northwest, they actually thought America was willing to go to war over these. So they did back away from those. Uh, those are very overview type of answers. Um, but before I take any more questions, how are we on time? Uh, I'll keep going all day, by the way. That's not a backing away from this. We could go a little bit longer. I'm not sure what uh, use the room has after this, but I think we're clear Roger. More if we have more questions. It looks like we have more interest. Is that right? Go ahead. We have one more interest. <laughs> I appreciate the fact that you were able to, uh, you know, gather that connection between having, you know, his grand strategy of having a strong economy, you know, investing mm. in the American population before you even have a strong economy, you know. And I think uh, your message should be heard by Congress, especially this time, because they're doing a lot of things that are kind of detrimental to the American population. I think, in my opinion, from what I see. Um, I think those values, those American values that he fought for, they have to hear this. They have to be this. I think. Um, I totally agree. Every single member of Congress. You know, like, next year, I, um, you know, I got accepted to Columbia University, but you know, I have to pay this, you know, fifty-seven, fifty-seven thousand dollars worth of loan, and they, Congress just uh, took away this, uh, the subsidized loans for, for, for that, you know, for the graduate program. So, you know, you're creating this whole, you know, society in which you have people who are smart and, you know, but you're kind of enchained by the banks. So I wonder, you know, how much you can do to promote your book for the people who actually have, you know, the top well, I clearly have no ability to promote my book for the people who are in power and make decisions. Let me uh, tell you, um, when I had the uh, great honor and pleasure of working for uh, Secretary of State John Kerry, and when I was uh, lucky enough and he was foolish enough to allow me to brief him on issue X, Y, or Z, um, I certainly did not start nor uh, lead to nor conclude any of my briefs with Sir, this is what John Quincy Adams would have done. Although I will note, too, that in the secretary's inner suites, there are not one, not two, but three different portraits of John Quincy Adams. Um, but you know, let me actually spin your question in a slightly larger way. I think this might be an interesting way to kind of conclude. Uh, one of the reasons that Adams is, I find, so interesting is because he does offer a vision of American progress. But it is not the only vision of American progress. In some ways, this nasty debate that springs up between him and Andrew Jackson is because it is a very substantive debate about how the national development, how the economy is best suited to grow. And in fact, Adams has an argument that he makes very explicitly that it is through not centralized, complete control, but that only Washington can steer and guide this development. Whereas a Jeffersonian and then really a Jacksonian interpretation is that political development should not be directed nor controlled by Washington. That's not how political development works. In some ways, this is the argument Americans have been having with ourselves since our very founding. And I would say even in American historiography, the two greatest books that have come out on this period in the last 10 years, really in the last probably decade or two, um, say very different things. Uh, so you have 
Sean Wolentz, great historian, by the way, who was an undergrad at Columbia. So you now can note that when you go there. But he is a uh, professor at Princeton. And he won the uh, Bancroft Award for his uh, book, The Rise of American Democracy. And the central argument, the central thesis in this is that Thomas Jefferson and Andrew Jackson really are the key players in the development of democracy in America. Daniel Walker Howe, who won the Pulitzer Prize about five years ago for his book on the same exact period entitled What Hath God Wrought, dedicates his book, dedicates the book to John Quincy Adams. Now, uh, this is great and a great lesson to me because I guess it means once I've written 15 books, I can dedicate them to historical figures. I mean, this book is dedicated to my parents and my wife, uh, but he dedicated it to John Quincy Adams because it is his argument that to understand the development of the American Republic, our ideas and our ideals, it is not Jackson, but it's actually Adams who stands at the center. Now, I think that if you read one or the other of these, I'm clearly an Adams man, even though I'm a Yale guy. Okay, let's be clear. But taking only one of these without understanding that kind of tension that the other brings is a misunderstanding of American history. Uh, so a friend was asking me last night uh, when we were talking about kind of we were spitballing some projects that we're working on. He said, well, who's the nemesis of Adams? Uh, and I said, well, it kind of depends. He has lots of nemeses, uh, but it depends on which chapter. Uh, and Jackson is clearly one. John Calhoun is another. Henry Clay, even though become friends later. So I guess really to answer your question, I have to find someone who's written a really good biography of John Calhoun, maybe, and then we can jointly pitch Congress with our books. Uh, but I don't have a good answer on how to sell more books because I clearly failed at that. <laughs> Speaking of which, do we have the books? Yeah, they're outside, I think. Okay.